It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. Have you ever been listening along to one of our debates or discussions and thought, I'd love to ask my own question to those speakers? Well, now you can. Our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus, allows you to take part live and ask your questions to the speakers during the event and even have your name read out here on the podcast. And we're offering a special 20% off discount to all our podcast listeners to join today. Just go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and enter the code podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And join today to take part in some exciting upcoming events, such as our debate on whether cancel culture is threatening our freedom and another conversation on the East India company and why it's relevant for understanding capitalism today. It's a great way to support Intelligence Squared and also to learn from some of the most brilliant minds. Now to this week's episode. I'm delighted to say that this week we have a returning guest, Ian Urbina. Many of you might remember that Ian came on the podcast last year to discuss his book, The Outlaw Ocean, in which he investigated the lawless frontiers of the world's ocean. Well, About a month ago, Ian reached out to us about a new investigation he was working on, uncovering the largest known case of illegal fishing by one country in another's waters. Yes, Chinese squid boats in North Korean waters in violation of UN sanctions. It's a really important conversation and deals with issues such as why dead North Koreans were washing up on the shores of Japan, as well as why calamari squid have suddenly vanished from the waters of Japan, Russia and Korea. And Ian spoke to Rosamond Irwin about what he discovered and why it matters. Hello, I'm Rosamond Irwin, a journalist at the Sunday Times. And I'm here with Ian Urbina, the renowned investigative reporter. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me. Well, it's lovely to have a returning guest. Lots of people will have read about these ghost ships that have turned up with bodies of North Korean fishermen in, in Japan. Let's go to the beginning of the story. When was that first ghost ship found? And what was the view at the time of what was actually happening? Around six years ago, these sort of strange occurrences began. They're typically five to six man boats, decrepit, wooden North Korean boats that were washing up on Japanese shores. And often they had emaciated dead bodies on them who, um, upon investigation, had 
uh, seemingly died from hyperthermia or um, starvation. Uh, and the going theory at the time was that these were North Korean fishermen who had been pressured largely um, by Kim Jong-un, uh, the, South, uh, the North Korean leader, uh, to bring in more fish because North Korea was de- desperate for revenue and protein sources. And these fishermen, due to that pressure, were going too far out to sea, getting stranded, and then due to the currents, washing ashore uh, in Japan. That was the theory at the time. The argument you make instead is that China is sending a previously invisible armada of industrial boats to illegally fish in North Korean waters. What's the evidence of the impact those Chinese boats are having? Really, there are two things that show impact. One is there's been a precipitous decline in the squid stock in this body of water known as the Sea of Japan or by Koreans as the East Sea. And a 70% decline is a pretty sharp drop off for six, seven years time. And it doesn't typically occur just by um, artisanal boats like the ones we've described. So there had to be a bigger factor at play. And then the other evidence of, of at least the presence, if not the repercussions of the Chinese flotilla, was that a a sort of combination of about four different types of satellites were used that allowed this firm called Global Fishing Watch to suddenly see what previously was invisible, which is these boats in these squid boats, Chinese squid boats in North Korean waters who had their transponders turned off and were trying to be there without being seen. And once that rather clever approach was used to lay eyes on what at the time were dots on a map, many of them to the tune of, you know, almost 800, then the next task was to verify, are these squid boats and are they all Chinese? The, of the the sort of ghost ships turning up, you've seen a dramatic jump, as you outline in this piece. Last year, more than 165 of these vessels washed ashore in Japan. That was more than double a year earlier. Why has that number increased so dramatically in such a short time? I think the cumulative effect, you know, so this is all speculation, informed speculation, but nonetheless speculation, various factors. Number one, the sort of accumulated presence of these uh, uh, industrial boats, which, you know, bear in mind, these are five, six times larger than the North Korean artisanal boats. They're um, extremely efficient. And when you're talking about, you know, 800 of them, that has a real impact, especially over the course of time. So four or five years running, this fleet had been coming in and raking the waters, and that was accumulating and causing a greater level of desperation from the North Korean boat uh, fishermen to go further out to to reach bare minimum you know quota secondly the the international pressure that had been applied to north korea after the 2017 nuclear tests in the form of un sanctions sanctions that for forbade many things including any foreign vessels being in north korean waters 
those sanctions were having an impact on the North Korean economy, both in terms of fuel, in terms of the ability of the country to get clean or, you know, real quantities of fuel, new engine parts so they could repair their boats, and also just food. And so all of those forms of desperation were adding to the tendency of these fishermen to go further out to sea. Uh, And so those factors primarily contributed to the rise in number. The Chinese vessels, are they in violation of the UN sanctions that forbid foreign fishing in North Korean waters? Yeah, without a doubt. The the sanctions on this matter are fairly clear and no foreign powers are allowed to be fishing in uh, those waters. And even more egregious, uh, these sanctions were unanimously signed by the UN Security Council members, and, and that includes China. And furthermore, historically, Chinese have had a, the Chinese government has had a relationship with North Korea, obviously, and have bought fishing rights from North Korea. But once those sanctions were signed, those relationships were supposed to be paused. And though there were, you know, isolated reportings by Japanese and South Korean fishermen of Chinese boats going into these waters, China always denied that they were anything other than bad apples or rogue players. But when you're talking about a fleet on the order of 800 boats, which is, you know, nearly a third of the entire distant water fishing fleet of of the official tally of the Chinese government, it's hard now for the Chinese government to say that this was occurring without their knowing or that these were rogue actors. Um, the, the fishing grounds in the Sea of Japan, you say that they include some of the world's most contested and poorly monitored waters. Why are they so poorly monitored? It has something to do with the, the players at hand. So on the one hand, you have North Korea and North Korea does not have the fuel or Navy capacity to really monitor its waters. So there are very few Coast Guard or Naval vessels that are out there um, monitoring those waters and enforcing the rules. And then on the other side, you have Russia, uh, which um, has a very strong Navy, but doesn't tend to enforce fishing violations of this sort, and certainly doesn't tend to go out to the outer edge of its territorial waters to, to deal with this. Furthermore, what's being taken, namely squid, is not a huge commodity in Russia. So they tend to historically look the other way around, the other way. Now, Japan and South Korea are the other players bordering this sea. And those two countries uh, very aggressively enforce their waters because they have a lot at stake and they have strong naval and coast guard presences. And so then now throw the Chinese in the mix who don't border this sea, but they cross through national waters to get to North Korean waters. And you have a volatile situation. You have some lax players, you have some very aggressive players, and you have some interlopers. You say that when you went to the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they they say that China has consistently punished illegal fishing uh, is that the case in your uh, in your experience? It's not the case, and it's not really just me. You know, the, um, China has again and again been ranked as the, the sort of worst purveyor of what's called IUU or illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing. Partly, that's uh, it's complicated as to why that is the case. Factors include it has the the largest fishing fleet on the planet. You know, the next closest contestant, you know, is, 
well, the, the Chinese fishing fleet is larger than the next three countries combined. So it's a sprawling force. China also has, you know, 1.3 billion population. So the sort of food security pressures internally to China are strong. And also China doesn't have a long reputation of, of strong oversight of its fishing industry. You know, it was sort of one of these industries that for many decades, the government said, you know, could regulate itself. So for all of those reasons, and furthermore, China has a maritime geopolitical effort underway in which it's actively using its fishing boats as proxy forces for other ambitions, oil and gas, mining, you know, shipping lane uh, access, etc. And you see these, sh- these fishing boats in many places in the world, including the South China Sea near Thailand and the Spratly Islands, playing a, a pseudo military role. So for all of these reasons, no, uh, China doesn't tend to rein in its fishing fleet. In fact, it, it empowers and protects uh, the fishing fleet to do things that are illegal. What does your investigation tell us more generally about China as a geopolitical power and how it actually behaves? I mean, you know, again, in fairness, I think it's always important not to sort of slip into some sort of xenophobic China bashing. It's bordering on racist. If you forget the historical context, that reminds us that, you know, Europe and the U.S. were engaged in this very same agenda for, for many decades and behaved in much the same way as and Russia, you know, as we grew to sort of imperial power. China is simply the new big guy on the block globally and is acting as such. And it has made a very clear decision that one of the ways it's going to do that is on the water, because most other countries, look, in the 1980s, the US, for example, had 400 Navy vessels. The US now has half that numbers, whereas China's numbers of Navy vessels and fishing boats have grown, you know, threefold in the last four decades. Um, So China is making a real push to establish its hegemony on the water. Partially, again, that's a lot of its population and its region, Asia generally, eats seafood. Furthermore, there's a, there's a vacuum there that China sees the opportunity to fill. And what about the impact on North, Korean, uh, on North Korea and specifically the North Korean port towns that you say are, are now called widows' villages? What is the impact being felt in North Korea um, of this? Well, they call it the hermit, you know, kingdom for a reason, which is to say that very little information gets out from there. So you're always a little at risk when you try to talk about North Korea because you're basing the perspective on, on minimal info. So when it comes to the government and the sort of higher level impact of this massive incursion of the Chinese, it's hard to say whether that's hurting or helping the government. Um, for all we can tell, the North Korean government is benefiting from uh, this incursion because there are some underhand, under under the table um, financial deals that have been cut in violation of the sanctions that are helping keep the current North Korean government afloat. On the other hand, this might these incursions, these this squid fleet, might be occurring without North Korean permission or benefit. In which case, it would be quite hurting the North Koreans on the lower level of Korean society, meaning the fishermen, you know, the average. North Korean citizens themselves and fishermen, um, the impact of this presence is severe. So you have, number one, the the decline of, of a key source of protein and food because of the overfishing and industrialization of, of this 
take. And bear in mind, just not to go down a rabbit hole here on the fisheries science, the, the squid migrate up to this northernmost point in their short lifespan, and they procreate at the top of their migration. And then they head south back down to the lower tip of the Korean Peninsula to die. And the, these fish are being pulled out of the water by this Chinese fleet at um, a place right before they procreate. And that's really worrisome to fishery scientists because it means sure collapse of the colony because they're not breeding. You know, um, they're getting eaten before they're procreating. So there are real worries for the North Koreans from a food security perspective. And then, as you say, that, you know, many of these fishermen are, are dying at sea and washing ashore on Japanese uh, on the Japanese coast, and so much so that there are these villages in North Korea that have been nicknamed widows' villages because so many of the men uh, never came back from from sea. When they find these boats, what do they look like? You know, they wash ashore, right? And they're they're maybe twenty to twenty five feet in length. You know, barnacle crusted wooden vessels, very low tech. A lot of these boats use very bright light bulbs, which is one of the ways that Global Fishing Watch and a team of academics use satellites to spot them because the light bulbs uh, are turned on at night and they attract the squid closer to the surface of the water, make them easier to catch. And so when they wash ashore, you know, these are vessels that are clearly very old. They're typically one or two outboard motors the motors and how old they are and how broken down they are tell you a lot about the state of the industry in North Korea. And again, the gear is uh, old and often they have, you know, North Korean documents on board indicating that their government has given them permission to go to sea. And obviously there are bodies sometimes on board. What can we tell about them? You know, obviously they would have performed autopsies on some of them. What, what can we tell there? Starvation, hypothermia, malnutrition are the typical causes of death. Usually the, the, the speculation is that, you know, if you, if you think of the coast of North Korea and you think of, say, 1,900, 800 huge industrial Chinese boats, and the Chinese, by the way, are famously aggressive. If you get too near, if they perceive you as a competitor or a threat, there's usually security boats that go with these flotillas. So you don't want to go anywhere near them. And so th- these wooden boats need these Chinese North Korean wooden boats need to go around the band of Nor- of Chinese boats and to the other side so as to fish safely and productively so they're going all the way around the band of Chinese boats to the you know 200 300 mile mark of their waters and typically the engine dies a storm hits these are very rough weather-wise waters high waves and when the when the boats do wash up with bodies on them in Japan, they usually look like men who were uh, stranded for long periods of time. Sometimes they have found survivors. What have they said when they're interviewed? Very little, you know, for, again, pure speculation, but lots of predictable reasons. Uh, the North Korean fishermen, you know, the fishing industry generally glo- around the world, but especially in North Korea, tends to draw on very poor, less educated, rural folk. So these are uh, very provincial North Koreans who don't speak any other language and are very fearful of saying anything to foreign authorities 
probably because there would be dire repercussions for their families back home if they attempted or were seen to be attempting to talk to the uh, enemy outsiders or even uh, try to uh, emigrate. So they tend to clam up and just say, I, I want to be sent back home. Please send me back home. And and that's all that they say. They got stuck out. Sometimes in, in sparse interviews with Japanese uh, investigators, they've said they got stuck or the engine died or something like that. But they don't mention typically the Chinese. The Chinese spottings have largely and well been well documented by South Korean Coast Guard, Japanese Coast Guard, who when the the Chinese pass through those waters are allowed to board those vessels. And that's when uh, um, interviews with those players have occurred. Initially, when they found uh, some of the first boats, there were worries in Japan that these ghost boats were carrying potentially spies, thieves, or or possibly that this could be used as a way of of bringing contagious disease uh, into other countries. Has that been completely rubbish? Does that just reflect a uh, feeling, a concern about North Korea that, that actually in this case is completely unjustified? I mean, personally, I think so. I, I, you know, I can't say with certainty, but the theories that speculate that these fishermen are serving other purposes uh, don't add up to me because there are much easier ways if North Korea had the resources and inclination to uh, want to send spies into Japan or South Korea f- for that to occur. Sending rural older fishermen uh, across the sea as a ruse for entering the country seems implausible to me. And the contagion notion also just seems like a reach to me. Um, uh, so I think what those theories more indicate is, as you suggested, they tell you more about the historical paranoia, the historical tensions that exist between these countries. And indeed, you know, two, two, three decades ago, there there were spies and were real examples, documented examples of the North Koreans attempting to infiltrate Japan and even kidnappings historically by North Koreans of Japanese coastal citizens as leverage. But th- those years are long since passed. Is this adding to any tension between Japan and North Korea at the moment? We're in a weird moment, aren't we, you know, with this global pandemic. And so uh, at the time of this reporting, it was a different world. And at the time of this reporting, when we went to sea to document this story, it was uh, only 2019, but, you know, it seems like an eternity ago. In the year prior, there had been serious escalation in the rhetoric between North Korea and the U.S., and therefore between North Korea and indirectly Japan, which is a U.S. ally, and indeed would be the first place hit if any of those recently tested nuclear weapons were launched by North Korea. And so there was acute worry in Japan. Indeed, you'll probably remember two years, two and a half years ago, there was an incident where there was an alarm went off in Japan nationally that nuclear weapons were inbound and the entire country had to reckon for however long that panic lasted with the notion that impending destruction was on the way. It was a fa- it was a false report, but it felt very real at the time to Japanese. And, and so th- these are very lived worries for the Japanese and the South Koreans, especially when, quite bluntly, the U.S. 
administration and our president is stoking the uh, North Korean government and Kim Jong-un in particular, those worries get really intense. And in 2018 and 2019, they were very intense. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I want to bring South Korea a bit more into this. You've mentioned a little bit about the impact on the country, but in your report, you talk about Yulong Island and and the impact it's having there. What what is that? So there's this tiny spit of land in the middle of the East Sea or Sea of Japan, which is the land closest to the North Korean sea border that you can go to. You know, it's the only place in that middle of that body of water. And it's a strange place. And I desperately wanted to go visit it for that reason. It's, you know, 98% consisting of squid fishermen. It's a South Korean island. It's tiny. It's gorgeous. It's a it's a popular spot if you can stomach the, the, the boat trip or the flight um, for South Korean tourists, um, mountainous, beautiful, uh, and it's also a island that has a tiny port, a port that happens to be closest to the fishing grounds that these very Chinese boats use or target in North Korean waters. All right, so when a major storm emerges and the entire Chinese flotilla realizes they need to get out of the middle of the ocean, out of the middle of the sea, and hunker down, drop anchor in safer waters near a port, the the best place to go is this island. And that's terrible news for the mayor of Yulung Island, because when you have 700, 800 huge industrial boats uh, enter your waters and drop anchor in a port that's used to, on a busy day, 20 vessels, you have big problems. And pollution problems, noise problems with the generators, just resource problems when these individuals, if they disembark and come ashore, there can be clashes. And there's real tension culturally and professionally, if you will, between the South Koreans who live on this island who are being put out of business by these big industrial boats that are illegally fishing, and the South Korean squid fishermen who have for several generations depended on the very same squid that they can no longer catch. Uh, so this is not a great situation. So when I went to Yulung Island, it was very interesting because on the Korean, in South Korea, on South Korean mainland, people were very nervous to talk about, to say anything about the Chinese or the North Koreans for reasons of the political tensions of the time. When I so I had to sort of warm them up quite uh, significant um, to get them to talk about this problem. 
when I went to Yulung Island, they couldn't stop talking about it. I mean, that was the first thing they brought up and said, please, will you tell the world what's happening to us and what they're doing? And here are pictures of when they come in. Here's what they did to our one main clean water pipe that runs to the island when they dropped their anchor and dragged it and then just left. And we were out the funds to actually get potable water. And, you know, they, they just went on and on about the um, real life impact of, of this behavior. I want to talk about a tiny bit about um, some of the wider issues in the outdoor ocean, which is a truly wonderful book. You say in it uh, that two thirds of the planet is, is covered by water, ungoverned and ungovernable. What are the main challenges of trying to report on this unknown bit of the world, though? I mean, again, as a fellow reporter, I think you can relate and probably intuit the answers here. One is the geography. You know, th- this is you know, editors want stories fast. And this is not a fast place to get to and find people to talk to. And so just the the, the difficulty of getting out to sea and the amount of time that sea travel takes, and then the conditions on the boats that um, are of most interest, which are typically long haul global fishing vessels. These are, you know, awfully dirty, extremely dangerous vessels Furthermore, the culture of fishing generally is a very closed one, and outsiders uh, are viewed with a skepticism that you know I had never encountered before. And I've covered you know truck drivers and coal miners, and you know so th- there are a lot of barriers to access. And then when you get there, just as a fellow writer, you ha- you can relate to the the beauty and horror of trying to capture a world that is so foreign than the one that your readers are familiar with. So, you know, it's like space travel and time travel bundled in one in that you're going back in time and you're seeing things you thought had disappeared, you know, a century ago. Slavery, arms trafficking, illegal whaling, you know, um, piracy. These are things of lore. And yet there they were right in front of me and are in ongoing stories. And so rendering that reality in words that land in a believable, consumable fashion to readers is not easy. And then space travel, you're in a spaceship, right? You are on a boat traveling through an inhospitable middle space for weeks, sometimes months, other times, the laws of physics and time don't operate the same way they do on land. And so just sort of surviving that experience on the off chance that you might get to that fleet or that captain or that one vessel uh, or that one little atoll where you're aiming and talk to the right people, that is another challenge to the journalism. One thing that really shocked me in your book, and probably this would seem so obvious to you, but you say in much of the maritime world, the law protects a ship's cargo better than its crew. Um, have, Have you found that people are quite shocked by how extreme the conditions are and and essentially what i what i found breathtaking in your book was the lack of respect for human life i I do think that if you view the 56 odd million mostly men seafarers as a tribe right uh, almost anthropologically think of them as this diaspora transient tribe that has its own language and norms and rules and hierarchies and, you know, worldview, and certainly mode of existence and crime, they have a lot of distinctions to them. And 
as a tribe, they're relatively invisible to us who landlubbers who live on land, but yet rely on them hugely. 90% of everything we consume comes by way of ship, right? 50% of the world's oxygen comes from the ocean. So they operate in a vitally important space that we rarely hear about, and they do stuff that's really important to us. Already that sort of puts you in the right headspace about these people. And then you think about the fact that the governments, because laws are only as good as their enforcement, um, to the extent that there are any laws that you know are not contradictory or murky uh, that apply for out there, there are very, very few police that actually can enforce them. And the, the players out there, nefarious players, the ones who want to murder or beat or rape or dump oil or sell arms or sell people or, you know, what have you, the, the really seasoned ones, which are a minority, but know this, that out there, the captain is God and you can do what you want because no one is really going to come after you. And you only need to worry a little bit when you come into port that it might catch up to with you. But if you spend most of your time out there, you can do as you see fit. So I, I think that's a description of this portion of uh, that world that is dark and sort of why it, it is unusually dark. Your book isn't a very cheerful book. <laughs> I wondered if you see any cause for optimism in either the, your book or, or in the report. Is there anything that we could end on a, on a slightly <laughs> happier note? Are, are we looking at least at these issues and therefore slightly more likely to come up with solutions to them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, just to start from the ground up and move toward your question, there's beauty and heroism in in sizable quantities right out there and in plenty of examples. So just the f- from the camaraderie to the humor to the scrappy ingenuity to the will to survive to the work ethic of the the very trafficked migrant Cambodian 15-year-old boys on these vessels who are there stuck and have no choice but to stay. And yet they're inspiring. And that gives you a real, at least it gave me and continues to a sense of hope and wonder, frankly, at us as humans and them as um, pretty impressive survivors. Then move up uh, in altitude to some of these players that are out there fighting the good fight, you know, the vigilante conservationists or the the uh, uh, anti-trafficking workers who are in port helping to free some of these such young boys, Um, you know, the law enforcement players who are out there trying to police to the extent that they can. And then even higher altitude to your actual question, you know, are we tackling any of these problems on a meta level? This recent Korea story is, is, an example of what that looks like, an optimistic outlook on, you know, an amazing firm called Global Fishing Watch teaming up with international academics and law enforcement and a journalist, in my case, um, to spend a year investigating this and showing the world what's happening out there in a way that hopefully moves the needle. And I think it has started to move the needle on this issue, at least. Well, thank you very much, Ian. That's been fascinating. Thank you to Intelligence Squared. And um, if viewers want to find out more about the Outlaw Ocean Project, they can go to the link in the episode description. Thank you. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... 
Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 